is about abiding in the immeasurables. Or another title could be the heart's release. The immeasurables, another name that maybe some of you are more familiar with, is the divine abidings or the divine abodes. Metta, unconditional love, unconditional friendship. Karuna, compassion. Mudita, the joy that we take in another's delight, another's happiness. And upeka, equanimity, balance of heart, of mind. The divine abidings. This evening we'll be focusing our exploration primarily on unconditional friendship, unconditional love, with uh, some compassion thrown in there. And I'd like to begin it with a personal story. One uh, very early morning, many, many years ago, Very shortly after two of my eldest sons were born, two because they were twins, I was holding one of them um, just as the first first dawn light was breaking, quite early one morning. Moments before this, he'd just awoken from sleep, and he was quite contented and quite relaxed in my arms at that moment. And there was a very early morning sweetness and uh, kind of tenderness between us. I found myself looking very deeply into his tiny face. And I felt my heart quivering, trembling, kind of vibrations permeating in this center of my body and then spreading out through my whole body into my limbs and my up into my mind or wherever the mind is, just spreading through me, this kind of trembling and quivering. The experience was of a very deep connection, a very profound intimacy with this new being in that fresh early morning light. Intricately interwoven with those intimate moments that morning of peace and love was a very deep intuitive knowing that at times this tiny being was going to experience suffering and maybe sometimes great suffering in his life as it unfolded. That there would be many difficult situations There would be numerous painful bodily and mental feelings within himself as his life unfolded. And in those moments that morning of sweetness, love, that heart connection, I didn't feel any fear with that realization that came. There wasn't any feeling of entrapment or any sense of contraction away from this knowing. There wasn't any sense of needing to control 
There wasn't any sense of needing to do anything in the midst of that moment, those moments. There was that morning in those moments a feeling of great spaciousness, a feeling of very deep connection, what we might call a radical receptivity, a, a radical acceptance, just simply allowing the experience to be there and honoring it and honoring the being in my arms, honoring his life, honoring him and honoring his life, however it would be over the years. There was a clear sense that morning that difficulty and the sometimes great suffering that accompanies it is within the natural unfolding of life. That this is the way of things, this is the way of beings. In those moments of holding my very new son, the clarity and the depth of this knowing were touched with a much in a much deeper way, with more profundity than I'd ever experienced before, actually. And my, my eyes filled with tears. But they were a particular kind of tears. They weren't the heart-aching tears that accompany feelings of very strong attachment or feelings of helplessness. These were really the tears of experiencing a very deep connection, a deep acceptance, an understanding that really went far beyond my son and I in those amazing moments. These were really the tears of a few moments of unconditional love, the tears of the heart of compassion. Those early dawn moments many years ago as I, that I experienced looking into the face of my tiny son. They've re revisited me many times over the years in rather surprising moments over the years. And each time they've revisited me in their own particular way, it's as though the world is new again and my heart, my mind open in this receptivity, ready to receive the world just as it is. This is, this is from a Krishnamurti meditation journal. When the heart enters into the mind, the mind has quite a different quality. It's really then limitless. It's a sense of living in a vast space where you are part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It's inexhaustible. 
My uh, Burmese teacher, Sayadaw Upandita, used to tell us that, uh, he said, most people think that everything begins and ends here, and he'd kind of knock himself on the head. And he'd, then he'd say, I've been checking for a long time, which he had. He was a monk since he was a little boy. He said, I've been checking for a long time. And he said, I found out that everything begins and ends here. And he'd kind of thump himself in the chest at the heart center. So after he said it a few times, I started checking. <laughs> seems so. seems that's true. The Buddha talked about how powerful, how consequential it is to experience just one moment of a heart fully absorbed in the feeling of unconditional friendship, of unconditional love. A moment when the sense of separation, a sense of distinction, a sense of difference, when discrimination has disappeared, is absent, just for a moment. We call this love. Metta, this unconditional friendship, is really the ground, it's the bed for all of the, or that, all of the other divine abidings or immeasurables spring from. And it's what allows the whole of our practice to unfold from and into this core of kindness. As we practice in specific ways, cultivating metta, prompting this energy, as we practice our vipassana practice, there's a very natural growth and development. Metta just grows itself, we could say. There's a natural unfolding, a natural ripening of patience, confidence, fearlessness, trust, a natural entering into happiness, we could say. All of those qualities are part of feeling happy, experiencing happiness. And the other Another aspect of what happens is that the various flavors of ill will, the energies of hostility, judgment, hatred, dislike, that we experience towards ourselves, that we experience towards others, these energies begin to subside with this natural opening and ripening of a loving heart through our practice. It's inevitable, actually. The practice of metta weakens these states. We could say that unconditional friendship, unconditional love, secludes, it cloisters the heart, the mind, from anger, from fear. These very strong energies that move through our body move through our mind, they begin to weaken, they begin to subside under this very strong light of a loving heart. So the more moments of metta 
the less moments of anger, of worry, of fear, of anxiety. It's just not possible to feel unconditional friendship, unconditional love at the same time as fear. They don't exist in the same moment. So the more moments of unconditional friendship, the less moments of fear, anger. Someone once asked Nisargadatta Maharaj, he said, what can make me love? And his answer was, you are love when you're not afraid. I think that essentially every one of us wants to be a loving person, wants to be able to truly love. It's a natural part of our humanness. And when we experience even just a moment in this state of truly loving, there's a sense in that moment of not needing anything. It feels that we have everything that we need in that moment. It feels that we have gotten everything that we need in that moment. Things are just as they are, and that's enough. That's okay. Metta, or we could call it true love, comes from a knowing, an intuitive understanding of our essential connectedness, our essential interconnectedness. And it's actually, in its essence, impersonal. It's, it's a, an experience that, whether we know the beings or not, there's a sense of growing sense of interconnectedness with all forms of life. This wisdom, the deep understanding of interconnectedness or interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hans calls it, is metta itself, actually. Connection. Generosity of the heart is an absolutely natural human capacity. So from this perspective, it's not about working to attain something, but rather allowing the practice, our spiritual practice, be it Vipassana practice, Metta practice, allowing our practice to be loving-kindness, to be Metta itself. So from this perspective, we can turn right around and face the heart of metta, face the heart of loving-kindness itself, and ask, who loves? Who loves? I recently uh, finished reading a book uh, about and by a man named George Dawson, a 103-year-old black man, still alive, who actually just recently got a brand new house. 
He grew up in his family's farm in East Texas, and he's the grandson of slaves. At the age of eight, George had to go to work to help support his family. And so he never went to school and he never learned how to read until he decided to attend a literacy program actually just a few years ago when he was 98. Some very amazing, inspiring, um, and quite illuminating book. This man, George Dawson, describes how he learned to read the world and survive in it. At one point in the book, George is having a conversation with Richard, the man who um, wrote the book with George. And they're talking about how George, who at the age of 101, is still living alone and, uh, quote, George, doing just fine, he says. This is a bit of the conversation. Richard speaks. You're not, you aren't really alone. People call and come by all day long. There's a community of people that cares about you. You live by yourself, but no, you're not alone, George. That's right. You figured that out. Yes, it's nice that people stop by like they do, but they do because they want to. I have nothing to give them, but they always feel better when they leave. Richard, that sounds like a riddle. George, it does, doesn't it? I'll tell you the answer for that. All my life, I've been good to people. In all those years, every person I met, I've treated with respect. People do the same for me. Richard, what goes around comes around. George, that's right. It all comes back, everything you do. Sometimes, sometimes it takes a while is all. I tell people not to worry about things, not to worry about their lives. Things will be all right. People need to hear that. Life is good just as it is. There isn't anything I would change about my life. Richard, people worry too much? <laughs> George, that's right. Be happy for what you have. Help somebody instead of worrying. It will make a person feel better. It's good to be generous. It doesn't take much to make a difference. Even the poorest man can take time to say hello. That can be a help. Have sympathy for someone's hard luck story. It's not about money. Give what you can. And if you have nothing, at least pray for somebody. Have good thoughts. This is a poem that was written over a thousand years ago by a Buddhist nun. It's called Metta. If you develop love truly great, rid of the desire to hold and possess, that strong, clear love, untainted by lust, that love which does not expect to be repaid, that love which is firm but not grasping, enduring but not tied down, gentle and settled, diamond hard but not hurting, helpful but not interfering, cool and refreshing, giving more than taking, dignified but not proud, soft but not weak, that love which leads to enlightenment, then you will be washed of all ill will. In the process of cultivating, of prompting unconditional loving-kindness is the purification of its opposites. In the classical teachings, it's called the far enemies of metta. Energies like anger, 
jealousy, envy, all of the various forms that ill will takes. And also with the process of the development and the deepening of unconditional love, the purification of what are called the near enemies begins to unfold. The near enemies being what looks like love or what are conditional, conditioned habits of mind sometimes think of as love, greed, attachment, possessiveness. We're very uh, culturally conditioned towards this, our songs, our literature, films. They tell us that love hurts quite often. Misunderstanding. It's not love that hurts. It's the near and far enemies of love that hurt, that we suffer in. Unconditional loving kindness, unconditional friendship, that love which needs no conditions to be met, in this there's no suffering. And of course, it's essentially important that we don't pretend anything in our practice, that we don't think or act out of some idealized concept of what we think a loving person is or how we think we should be or what a spiritual person is supposed to be like. I think that our children are powerful teachers in this respect. They really keep us honest in this. It's hard to pretend. I'd like to read uh, something that someone sent me in this respect. It's uh, a practice that was, as I was told, uh, one of Mother Teresa's personal practices. It's an amazing practice from someone that um, many people thought of and think of as a saint. And I'll read it just the way it came to me. Deliver me, O Jesus, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being calumniated, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected, from a saint. I read that to a friend and he said, oh my God, I have a lot of work to do. <laughs> and we, we have work to do, you know, but I found it actually quite inspiring. So no pretending. Even Mother Teresa didn't pretend, even, I should say. Of course she didn't pretend. In our practice, we have the opportunity, quite often in our formal practice, in our practice of life, our family practice, we have the opportunity to come face to face with the conditioned states of mind, conditional states of mind that aren't metta. And we have the opportunity to come face to face with them without identifying them as who we are. Through our growing metta heart, our growing friendship with ourself, we can learn to accept these states as they arise and pass, as they come and go, just like all phenomena. 
This expanding capacity of our heart actually allows us then to explore these conditional states of mind with much less judgment, with much more spaciousness, and see them as they really are in their ephemerality, their impermanence, their not-selfness, their conditional nature. They're not me, not mine. We are as deserving of our love and care as any other being in this universe. We're no less deserving and yet no more deserving than any other being, but as deserving as any other being of our love and care. And so our practice very much begins with and continues to include ourselves. This intimacy, this depth of self-acceptance as it unfolds through our practice becomes an essential and expanding intimacy, a very deep intimacy with the basic nature of life itself. We are that. The intimacy of connection, the intimacy of interconnection, the essential intimacy of non-separation with all beings. We begin to come to know this, and it all very much includes ourselves. Metta, unconditional friendship, it's an antidote to the loneliness, the existential loneliness that's so very often the dis-ease or disease of our time. I'd like to read another uh, piece from George Dawson, this 103-year-old bodhisattva. Much of his life um, in East Texas, and a large aspect of it in his growing years, was enduring the very deeply pervasive racism of the South. In fact, East Texas during that time had the highest rate of lynchings of any state in the Union. When George was 65 years old, he was doing yard work for a woman who left his lunch on the back porch with her dogs. George. She didn't see me from the shadow of the tree, but I watched as she put down two bowls on the floor for some dogs, and another she set up on a shelf that was above the reach of the dogs. I climbed up on the porch and lifted the bowl off the shelf. It looked good, and as hungry as I was, it smelled even better. I was looking for a chair to sit in and a quiet spot to say grace when I looked down and saw the two dogs eating the same food that was there for me on the shelf. There wasn't such a surprise in that. People didn't buy dog food in the sack like they do now. Dogs mostly ate the leftovers from the table. But what hit me was that she expected that I would eat out on the porch with her dogs. I didn't have to eat in their dining room, but back in their kitchen would have been all right. I told myself that I was good enough to eat a meal with people, not dogs. I set the bowl back on the shelf. Being hungry, that wasn't so easy. I know she didn't plan to insult me. 
She just didn't know any better. Still, she could believe what she wanted. But I weren't no animal, and I wasn't going to eat with dogs. If I did, she would go on believing the way that way, and maybe she would have been right. Late in the afternoon, when I was finishing my work, she came by. Didn't you see the lunch I left on the porch? I nodded. I saw the dogs on the porch. Well, the lunch on the shelf was for you. It was a good lunch. Thank you. I'm sure it was. It's just that I don't eat with dogs. As I said this, I looked her straight in the eye. I could tell she understood what I meant. She got angry and red in the face, but I didn't turn away or look down. I eat with people. I'm a human being. At my words, her face tightened, and her look changed to meanness and anger. From her mother and father, and back through her grandparents, I could sense a hundred years of anger and fear coming out towards me. I stood up to it and repeated, "I'm a human being." She was so angry she couldn't speak. I waited. Finally, in a cold tone, she said, "You don't need to come back anymore." I said, "That's right. I don't need to." And George goes on to say, "I figure you can't hate someone for what they think or do, but you can hate yourself for the unacceptable ways you react to it." The confidence, strength, the straightforwardness that comes from a loving, compassionate heart—this tremendous fullness of energy—is what the Buddha called the lion's roar. He said that when he himself spoke, <laughs> it's roaring. He said that when he himself spoke, it was like the lion's roar in the jungle, because the power of his words. Were born out of loving care and compassion, and I'd like to、uh, close with a piece of a story. With what for me is is was a very amazing lion's roar. This is a story about Sue Ann Marie Big Crow. Who was、uh, born on March fifteenth, nineteen seventy-four, in the Pine at the Pine Ridge Hospital in Pine Ridge,、uh, Pine Ridge Indian Reservation? And I do have to read this, so bear with me. Sue Ann grew up with her sisters in her mother's three-bedroom house in Pine Ridge. Even today, people talk about what a strict mother, big a chick, big crow was. Her daughters always had to be in the house or the yard by the time the streetlights came on. The only after-school activity she let them take part in were the structured and chaperoned kind. Unsupervised wanderings and later cruising around in cars were out. In an interview when she was a teenager, Sue Ann said that she and her sisters had come up with their own fun because their mother wouldn't let them socialize outside of school. Chick Big Crow was and is a strong anti-drug and alcohol is, is anti-drug and alcohol. On the reservation, Chick had belonged to many years belonged for many years to the small but adamant minority that takes that stance. When Sue Ann was nine years old, she was staying with her godmother on New Year's Eve when the woman's teenage son came home drunk and shot himself in the chest. The woman was too distraught to do anything, so Sue Ann called the ambulance and the police cared for and care. And the police and cared for her aunt until the grown-ups arrived. 
Perhaps because of this incident, Sue Ann became as opposed to drugs and alcohol as her mother was. She gave talks on the subject to school and youth groups, made a video urging her message in a stern and wooden voice, and as a high schooler traveled to distant cities for conventions of like-minded teens. Once, Raul Bradford, a former Pine Ridge teacher and coach who was also a friend of the family, Once I asked, well, sorry, once I asked Raul Bradford, a former Pine Ridge teacher and coach who was also a friend of her family, whether Sue Ann's public advocacy on this issue wasn't risky, given the prominence of alcohol in the life of the reservation. You have to understand, Raul Bradford said, Sue Ann didn't respond to peer pressure. Sue Ann was peer pressure. She was the backbone of any group she was in. She was way wiser than her years. By coming out against drinking, I know she flat out saved a lot of kids' lives. As strongly as Chick forbade certain activities, she encouraged the girls in sports. At one time or another, they did them all, cross-country, running, track, volleyball, cheerleading, softball, basketball. Sue Ann spent endless hours practicing basketball. When she was in the fifth grade, she heard somewhere that to improve your dribbling, you should bounce a basketball a thousand times a day with each hand. She performed this daily exercise faithfully on the cement floor of the patio. Her mother and her sister got tired of the sound. For variety, she would shoot layups against the gutter and the drain pipe until they came loose from the house and had to be repaired. She tended to get into foul trouble. The referees ruled strictly in tournament games, and Sue Ann was used to a more headlong style of play. In the district playoffs against the team from Red Cloud, Sue Ann scored 31 points. Some people who live in the cities and towns near reservations treat their Indian neighbors decently. Some don't. Some people in South Dakota hate Indians unapologetically and will tell you why. In their voices, you can hear a particular American meanness that's centuries old. One place where Pine Ridge teams get used... Oh, I'm skipping a lot here. When teams from Pine Ridge play non-Indian games, the question of race is always there. When Pine Ridge is the visiting team, usually the hosts are courteous and the players and fans have a good time. But Pine Ridge coaches know that occasionally at away games, their kids will be insulted, their fans will feel unwelcome, the host gym will be dense with hostility, and referees will call fouls on Indian players every chance they get. One place where Pine Ridge teams used to get harassed regularly was the high school gymnasium at Lead, South Dakota. In the fall of 1988, the Pine Ridge Lady Thorpes went to Lead to play a basketball game. Sue Ann was a full member of the team by then. She was a freshman, 14 years old. Getting ready in the locker room, the Pine Ridge girls could hear the din from the Lead fans. They were yelling fake Indian war cries, a hoo-hoo-hoo sound. The usual plan for the pregame warm-up was for the visiting team to run onto the court in a line, take a lap or two around the floor, shoot some baskets, and then go to their bench at courtside. After that, the home team would come out and do the same, and then the game would begin. Usually, the Thorpes lined up for their entry more or less according to height, which meant that senior Donnie DeCorey, one of the tallest, went first. As the team waited in the hallway leading to the locker room, the heckling got louder. Some fans were waving food stamps, a reference to the, Indian, to the reservations receiving federal aid. Others were yelling, yelling where's the cheese? The joke being that if Indians were lining up, it must be to get some commodity cheese. The lead high school band had joined in with fake Indian drumming and a fake Indian tune. 
Donner, Donnie DeCorey looked out the door and told her teammates, I can't handle this. Sue Ann quickly offered to go in her place first, go first in her place. She was so eager that Donnie became suspicious. Don't embarrass us, Donnie told her. Sue Ann said, I won't. I won't embarrass you. Donnie gave her the ball, and Sue Ann stood first in line. She came running onto the court, dribbling the basketball, with her teammates running behind. On the court, the noise was deafening. Sue Ann went right down the middle and suddenly stopped when she got close to cent when she got to center court. Her teammates were taken by surprise, and some bumped into each other. Coates Amiga at the rear of the line didn't know why they had stopped. Sue Ann turned to Donnie DeCorey and tossed her ball. Then she stepped out onto the jump ball circle at center court, facing the lead fans. She unbuttoned her warm-up jacket, took it off, draped it over her shoulders, and began to do the Lakota shawl dance. I uh, often cry when I read this. <clears throat> and began to do the Lakota shawl dance. Sue Ann knew all the traditional dances. She had competed in many powwows as a little girl, and the dance she chose is a young woman's dance, graceful and modest and show-offy all at the same time. I couldn't believe it. She was powwowing like get down, Donnie DeCorey recalls. And then she started to sing. Sue Ann began to sing in Lakota, swaying back and forth in the jump ball circle, doing the shawl dance, using her warm-up jacket for a shawl. The crowd went completely silent. All that stuff the lead fans were yelling, it was like she reversed it somehow, a teammate said. In the sudden quiet, all they could hear was her Lakota song. Sue Ann dropped her jacket, took the ball from Donnie DeCorey, and ran a lap around the court, dribbling expertly and fast. The audience began to cheer and applaud. She sprinted to the basket, went up in the air, and laid the ball through the hoop, with the fans cheering loudly now. Of course, the Pine Ridge team went on to win the game. And the author of the article at the end says, I cannot find a single act as elegant, as generous, or as transcendent as Sue Ann's dance at center court in the gym at Lead. The lions roar. Let's sit together for a moment. It's 8 o'clock, and you know whatever it is you have to do.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.